Real people. Real opinions. Real talk radio. The multi-award-winning Niall Boylan Show. Classic Hits. Now, of course, the lockdown. The lockdown. The lockdown. Another two weeks. I mean, look, realistically, you know, the, you can talk about phase plans till they're hanging out of your yin-yang. But at the end of the day, nothing really happened on Friday. We're in more or less the same boat for another two weeks. It was a nice way of telling us, listen, we've got to do this for another two weeks till we see what's going on because really we have the bulls. And that's really what's going on at the moment. It's a kind of guessing game. It's a keep playing the game all the time and until we figure out what we should do or what the next step should be. And even the phases they've given us, they're movable. They're all movable. In other words, we don't know for sure if, for example, we get this, this and this and this, well, then we can move to this. So we don't don't really know yet. But the point is, that's creating a frustration in people. And people are finding it very difficult. Look, they've long, they've done the garden 400 times, they've built the wall, they've cleaned the house. They're finding it hard to motivate themselves. So I decided who better to get than somebody who's a motivational speaker and somebody who's been involved in mental health and mental health activist uh, for most of his life. And that's Enda O'Doherty. Enda, good afternoon or good evening to you. How are you? I'm fantastic, thanks be to God. I'm in great form. Super. Good. Well, we're all in the lockdown for quite some period of time now and probably for a period of time in the future and we all need a little bit of motivation. You're the expert and when I heard that you'd climbed Kilimanjaro with a washing machine on your back, I said, so you're, you're having a laugh and then I saw the photograph of you doing it and I said, no, this man is for real. You are certainly, <laughs> you are certainly motivated, And I don't know, motivated or, 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 or mad, Niall. I don't know. So, you know, sometimes I hear, um, and I have often said this on on radio or TV I hear people sometimes doing the introduction and they're talking about this guy who's walked from Belfast to Waterford done nine marathons in eight days with a washing machine or like you said climb Kilimanjaro and as I'm sitting back listening to the introduction I'm thinking that guy sounds a bit crazy you know and then <laughs> and then it sort of then the uh, interview says and Enda how are you today and then, and then it, it clicks it comes back to reality you know so some, some of those experiences are I know you've never done this but if you've ever drank too much at a party and you know the next day somebody says to you do you know what you did last night you know when you were standing on the piano singing or you did <laughs> something outrageous yeah yeah Naked, exactly. So it, sometimes when I'm talking to people about it, about my past experiences and, and the adventures, it's a bit like that. I'm almost like, you know, detached from it. I can't believe some of what's happened to me in the last few years happened. But well, it, it's well, let, well, let's go back to the start, Enda, because you, you had, yeah. from, from what I believe, you had the good life. You had the nice house. You had the car. You had the wife, the job. You had everything going for you. But you had a drink problem. And uh, and what was it made? What, where was the turning point in all that for you? What was the problem with all that? Yeah, well, the problem with that was, you know, I was drinking. I mean, when I when I say tell people I was an alcoholic, sometimes, you know, in Ireland we have this perception that an alcoholic is going to be, you know, living in a wheelie bin under a bridge, you know, eating kebabs and uh, out of the, out of the rubbish and having a dog called Freddy, and and only the <laughs> the dog bit was true, but the rest of it was wasn't. His, was his and, name Freddy, by the way. Yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> but I was like, if in a work scenario, you know, I'm assistant principal in a school, and if you saw me, I was first in, last out, suited, booted, happy, smiling. Um, but I was drinking three, four bottles of whiskey a week. My and were you miserable when you say you were suited, booted, happy, and you were doing your job and you were functioning very well? Were you miserably unhappy? I would describe it as dying in slow motion. What I was doing was was extreme slow motion suicide. My Friday night, I'd sit down to watch uh, the rugby and the old Celtic League. And I can remember clearly Friday night would be a pint glass of vodka. And I got to a point where a pint glass of vodka, I was merry. And I would probably drink some cough syrup as well. 
So that would kill most people, stop you what dead. What was but the story with the cops here? A mate of mine used to do that years ago and I didn't know ever realise. I know that it's I, obviously a hit out of it. I think it's just acts like a catalyst that just magnified the alcohol. But I mean, right. it's it, it, it's lethal dangerous. It could, you know, you could have a heart attack, you could die on the spot. But I, I know some alcoholics. We had an alcoholic on the show here going back about a year mm. ago and he told us at one stage he was so desperate, he had no money, and he would go into Bowmount Hospital and drink the hand sanitizer. And that's how desperate he became. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was listening. I was listening to you talk there about COVID and the payments, and you know, in the show earlier. And you know, it's 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 a, it's a really weird thing, a really weird perspective. Everyone has their own view on life, but like, I had to go to the pharmacy there this afternoon to get a prescription for my wife, and they insisted at the door I washed my hands, and insisted I washed my hands with alcohol before I used my card, and. And uh, okay. it's, it's a really tough thing to be an alcoholic and to have to wash your hands repeatedly with alcohol. With surgical it's, spirits, yeah. Oh, man, it melts my brain. But you, can you, sm- know, you can smell it, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. but it's, be- it's better than getting COVID, so I, I, I'm not that stupid, I'll do it. But, right, okay. Um, from a work perspective, look, I was uh, the guy, you know, I have a lovely wife, lovely kids, everything was good. But I really, I mean, I didn't realize how many mental health issues I had until I stopped drinking because I was medicating sleep disorder, depression, anxiety, panic attacks. I was burying those with my, with my good friend, Mr. Hennessy and Mr. Smirnoff. Okay, so you were just and kind of masking the symptoms, so to speak. Masking yeah. the symptoms, absolutely. Yeah. And I suppose for me, the crisis happened when I stopped drinking because um, when I stopped drinking, all of these demons jumped up and started to scream at me that they demanded the attention because they had been suppressed for years, you know? Yeah. Um, I think too it's a generational thing. I think I'm my dad has decided not to drink, but if he had and if he had gone the route I would, I think we would be fourth generation in a row where there okay. was an alcoholic on the male side. Yep. So I, I, I probably didn't have the genes for it. He was cleverer than me. He said, nope, not going to take the risk. And what was it uh, like, without getting too personal, what was that like for your family to live with somebody like you? They te- I mean, the thing about, you know, like we we're saying about different types of alcoholic, I had money. I had intelligence. Um, I had the, the the key word for me about being an alcoholic is deception and lies. Okay. Um, I hid from everyone. Very few people knew what I drank. Um, you know, it was. I remember there was a one particular work function I went to years ago, and everybody was drinking small bottles of Budweiser. So they had one or two each, which is not excessive at all. But you put those out on the table, and it looked like there was twenty or so. You know. Yeah. I stood there with a pint glass of orange, which was filled to the brim with vodka. And I can remember my boss at the time saying to me, good man, Enda, somebody being sensible. Oh, right, okay, yeah. Right. And, you didn't he, dis- and you didn't disagree with him? I didn't disagree, nor did I give him any sign that I had drank that much vodka. Yeah. You know, so there's a dishonesty there. But I suppose what I, what the, 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 the mad thing with the washing machine came about because I promised myself when I got health sober that I would, which is now 12 years ago, I promised myself, like a lot of men, I'd buy an obscene amount of Lycra, Lycra in my uh, 40s. <laughs> uh, Lycra pyjamas, Lycra teddy bear, Lycra pillows. They, and, they, but they uh, call that the midlife crisis end of that. Well, <laughs> my, my, wife, my wife calls it part one because I've had multiple parts. <laughs> Did you not but, buy the red sports car to go with it, no? Uh, no, I bought a white one. But it's a, <laughs> <laughs> I bought a white one. But um, I promised myself too that I wanted to help people that were in the dark spot I was in. I mean, I didn't attempt suicide, but I, I can remember a number of times walking and um, you'd see, I'd see a juggernaut or a heavy truck coming towards me and it made perfect sense to me to step off the footpath and get hit mm-hmm. by that truck. Yeah. And I've, been, you know, I've for, been there, I've been in that situation many, well, not many times, once in my life in particular, I've been in that yeah. situation where you felt, so what's the point? You know what I mean? Yeah, well, it, 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 for me it was logical because the mad thing was, 
the emotional pain and distress I was in, if you can imagine, that's bigger than getting hit by a truck. The truck was an easier option. Yeah. And thankfully, you know, it, something clicked in my head. You know, I, I, I've, I have three wonderful kids. I have an amazing wife. I knew what, what it would do. And, and as a, a mental health campaigner and someone who's involved with fundraising and talking about suicide and self-harm, and like I've been to numerous um, suicide funerals and, you know, anybody who dies by suicide, it's, it's, it's just such an awful tragedy. But what I see on the ground is it, it just takes the pain and problem you have. It magnifies it and passes it to people you love. Because and those people you love are saying, why didn't they say something? Why, did, why didn't they tell me? And, and then there's so many questions to ask or answer yeah, after their yeah. death as to what, what put them in that place or why they didn't get help or why didn't they reach out and talk to somebody or all that yeah. kind of stuff. So I, I had done a couple of Ironman events where I swam 4K and, you know, the, the 180K on the bike and then run a marathon. And my wife said to me one day, are you going to do another Ironman event? And I said, no, I'm going to do something for charity. And she said, what, what are you going to do? And... Um, I love, I love, I love, I love Irish women, and you know, I think we have a great use of comedy in Ireland. Because my wife said, "What are you going to do?" And I said, "I'm going to walk from Belfast to Waterford." And she said to me straight out, "She said, is that all?" And uh, of course, being an Irish man, I couldn't help myself. I said, "Well, I'll carry a washing machine on my back." Which you did. And she, <laughs> and she came straight back. We'll, we'll go on. And I said, "I will." And six months later, I walked out of the Europa Hotel with the washing machine on my back, and and about fifteen people, and off we went. The the washing machine, you know, going back to the suicide thing. The reason I carried a washing machine, obviously, it was to get media attention to get the story. Of and you the did, newspaper. and you did get it because there's loads of pictures of you and I don't know whether it's Zanussi or what it is. You and oh. the, you and your good friend Whirlpool or Zanussi on your back, yeah. Yeah, well, it was. We, it's funny. I tell people. People always ask me about the washing machine. I did say, you well, take I, the weights out of it? Honestly, did oh, you? listen. I'm not as stupid as I look. Now, the first <laughs> thing I did when I got home was I got the hammer and I beat it senseless. Took as many bits out as I could because they, because there's two big hunks of concrete in a washing yeah. machine, and I'm assuming yeah, you took those out because that wouldn't be humanly possible to carry that in your back. Well, here's the thing: is you have a pen, I'm sure, on the studio desk there yeah. in front of you, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. How, what weight would you say the pen is? Two grams, three two, grams? I was going to say two grams. Yeah. Right, so it's not a big weight. No. So if you hold that pen in your hand and extend your arm for the duration of this interview, I promise you in five minutes or ten minutes' time, your shoulder will be crying, right? So what I said to people at the washing machine is a couple of things. First of all, it weighs about 40 kilos, so it's, a, it's a probably about What's the weight heavy, of the, yeah. uh, an average 11-year-old. So if you can imagine an 11-year-old on your back from Belfast to Waterford, that's, that's why. I know, sure, we've all done it as parents if we've got kids and your kid wants to sit in your shoulders, you know, when they're two yeah. or three years of age and they want to sit yeah. in your shoulders and, you know, and yeah. just after a while, your back starts to ache. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's that for, it was that, um, it was that for eight days. The reason I carried the washing machine was twofold. First of all, eight people in Ireland on average lose their week, lose their lives to suicide per week. And my message was a really simple one, particularly to young men and particularly to men listening to your show tonight. Don't carry a stupid load around with you. If you're carrying a load, a heavy, heavy problem, the best thing to do with that load is share it, ask for help, reach out, get some counselling, talk to someone, get rid of that load because it could save your life. And the, the second message was equally simple. It was that, you know... A lot of people came to me after all of this and they said, Enda, we're so sorry that we didn't come to you or help you or talk to you. And I said to them, you couldn't because I was carrying it hidden. I would not tell people. 
So the second message we had was, you know, you have to ask people sometimes, are you okay? And you have to ask a second time or visit or ring because many people are carrying a load that's invisible and you just can't see it. So that was that was the, the message behind but the is, but, is there, but is there a problem? And I'll get to Kilimanjaro in a second because mm. that, 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 that's not where you stopped your stupidity. You went, yeah. you went down to Kilimanjaro. We'll get to that in a minute. So, yeah. But in relation to men reaching out for help, it's no yeah. secret that there are less uh, support systems for men than there are for women when it comes to mental health or when it comes to, I suppose, domestic violence or bullying or whatever it is. There seems to be a lot of, you know, different NGOs out there which are funded for, for females. But we have very little, it seems, for men. Or am I mistaken? I think I think things have improved dramatically in the last few years and I think the conversation has changed. Because like, we're macho, you know what I mean? We, we don't yeah. get affected by stuff like that, I say sarcastically. No, uh, well, I grew up in the 80s and, you know, you know, you didn't talk about things like this. You didn't admit weakness. And, like, what, what I've discovered in, in the journey I've been on and the people I've met is that real strength is the people who are able to say, I'm in trouble here, I'm struggling, this is tough for me, I, you know, can you help me? But, it's, really but isn't it hard? And it always was hard for men to talk about that, particularly when I mentioned domestic violence a second ago, right? Um, we yeah. have a huge problem. If Ireland, we don't have any figures. And I know Michal Martin was asked by Jerry Adams some time ago, what were the figures for domestic violence against men in Ireland? And he said he didn't know. And I think Sinn Féin's Jerry Adams replied, the reason you don't know is because we never looked into it. We don't have the figures. But in the UK, they reckon four in nine cases, but the majority of men don't report it. So is there still that thing for men... That, and you mentioned this, you know, it shows a weakness. Do men still think there's something weak about, you know, going to a psychologist or somebody professional or a friend and saying, listen, I have a problem in my life and it's really getting me down? Are, are, we, are, we, are we really bad at it? I think we have, I think we were atrocious, but I think as a country we have developed and changed and progressed, you know, that we're making, we're making real inroads. You know, like I, I, I grew up in a country where, that, you know, if, if your sexuality wasn't, you know, the same as the majority, you, you had to hide it and you had mm-hmm. to be ashamed and you were illegal. Or, you know, a country where we accepted terrible things happening in our society. I think, you know, society has opened and progressed and I think people are more open to speaking about it. And, and that's why, you know, like, I'll, I'll be honest with you too, and I, like sometimes people say to me, like, I make my living as a speaker. I, I work with companies and businesses and sporting teams and, and inspire people with what I talk about. But... I, I constantly stick with the pro bono stuff for the mental health charity stuff because one of the things that I discovered in, in my journey for help was helping someone else is the biggest improvement or help to my life, you know. Okay, because like you I, get a sense of satisfaction out of knowing that they're better. No, I get a sense of satisfaction realising that, you know, like my, my dad's a great man and he's, 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 he's cocooning, for, cocooning for all he's worth at the moment. Okay. <laughs> but he said, like he would say great wisdom to me. He would say, like, remember that you know nothing and remember it's your duty to, to help those around you. That's how you lift yourself up. And that's, that's really why I got involved in it. But I think, you know, people have improved. You know, people are more aware that, you know, your, your life is valuable and it's, you, you've got to be responsible for your own destiny and save it. You've got to reach out and ask for help and talk. Well, you know? it, I mean, somebody very valuable to me turned around and said to me that, and the very first thing that she said to me when I met her, and it was going back three years ago, was that the most important thing in your life is to value yourself. And I have to say, it's something that stayed with me for the last three years, yeah. is to value yourself. Because if you don't value yourself, nobody else is going to put any value on you. Yeah, well, I, re- I remember not so long ago, in the middle of one of our 9,000 COVID walks, I was talking to my wife and I said, why did you never tell me to drink less or to stop, you know, or why did you not tell me to, because if she asked me to do anything, we're together 30 years and I'd always do it, you know, and uh, she's a very clever woman and she said to me, you have to save yourself first. She said, mm-hmm. you're responsible for you. If you stopped for me, she said, you'd have stopped for a week, a month or a year. 
when you knew it was the right thing to stop for you, I knew there was no way you'd pick up a drink again. Yeah. And she was right. Yeah. You know, you have to, you have to say yourself. I, I suppose that's what the Alcoholics Anonymous kind of theory is, that you have to recognise that you have a problem and you have to recognise yeah. that you're the one who wants to do something about it. Right, let's get to Kilimanjaro. So uh, you, weren't, you weren't happy, you know, with your walk from Belfast. So you decided, you decided I'm going to climb Kilimanjaro, the second highest peak in the world, uh, with a washing machine on my back. Yeah, yeah, it was a bit, of, a bit of a, well, I suppose what happened was after Belfast to Waterford, we raised so much money and it got so much public awareness and so many people were talking about it and we managed to get um, Pieta House to open in Waterford, where I, Waterford City where I live. We set up a Facebook page and if anyone wants to go back and look at old videos or adventures, uh, it's called the Mental Health Challenge on Facebook. But we had enjoyed that and it was finished and I remember... You know, I went for a walk one one uh, lovely summer's day with my wife and we walked up Slevenamon and uh, we got halfway up Slevenamon and I was just walking and we're having a picnic and one of my friends was with us said, this would be a right spot for you to run up with the washing machine. And of course, someone else said the ter- the worst thing you can say to me, Niall, someone said you couldn't do it. And oh, that was stop. it. I was, I was away. <laughs> the macho kicked in. I can do it. Of course I'll do it. <laughs> yeah. The, yeah so but now like, there's a big you know, difference to leave them on in Kilimanjaro in fairness. Well, well you know, there isn't, there isn't in a way, right? Because, you know, and if, there's, if, there's any lady, if there's any ladies listening to this tonight, what I suggest you say to your husband is you'd never cut that lawn in 10 minutes and watch watch your husband run out the door and try to be, because we're, we're, we're a challenge for a lot of men is great you know it gets us going you know it was like but, the old um, thing when you were a kid and you wanted your mate to go to the shop for you go to the yeah. shop or your brother go to the shop go on yeah. I'll time you go on go yeah, I'll <laughs> and he had no watch on probably when he I'll said time it. you yeah. right so off yeah. you went to Kilimanjaro uh, by the way and on, a, on a more serious note I know one of your yeah. colleagues died in Kilimanjaro which uh, it was very sad somebody was telling me earlier on yeah, yeah. Well, the the the, the Schlievenamon thing is, if anyone's climbed climbed Schlievenamon, the surface and the graduate slope in Schlievenamon is pretty much what you get in Kilimanjaro. But the only difference with Kilimanjaro is, it's uh, like seven, eight days continuously up Schlievenamon. Um, you know, it's it's if you've climbed Karen Tuhul, day one you go from zero elevation to about three Karen Tuhuls. Um, you start off in the jungle; it's plus twenty degrees with ninety percent humidity. And when you get on summit night, it's minus 20 and you're talking, I don't know, 30 or 40 percent of oxygen that you have at sea level. So it's 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 a shocker. Like I I have a photo I sent it to one of your researchers there that one morning I took opened the tent door and I looked out and I was three days walk above the clouds with the washing machine. And you were looking down on the clouds. I remember walking with someone and some, one of my friends pointed down to the left and he, he pointed downwards and he said, look, what's that? And I sort of looked. I thought he was initially pointing at a rock and he, he was pointing at an aeroplane. So we had, we had, we We've had gone, gone higher back. than the aeroplane. We'd gone, yeah. So the, the other thing was one of the guides towards the end of the expedition, the guides were amazing. This guy, Emmanuel, was with me and he got quite, um, I suppose he got quite, serious on one of the final few days and I said to Emmanuel you're in bad form today why have you changed your mood and he said well we're at a height where helicopters can't fly anymore the air is too thin he said, oh, he said if, 
if something happens, we're you know we have to See, carry I you out. I wouldn't be able for that, but I tell you why. And this comes down to motivation, and, and obviously you have the motivation to do this because mm-hmm. if I if I'm going to walk somewhere, right, I consider myself yeah. reasonably lazy, right, when it comes to walking, yeah. right. I'd, I'd, I'd rather take the car to the corner shop. Okay, so if I if I'm going to walk somewhere, if I'm walking a decent distance, I'm always thinking to myself, the further I walk, the further I have to walk to get back again if I change my mind, right. So here you are, right, and you're up higher than helicopters can fly. I'd be looking out that thinking. If I want to give in now, I still have another five or six days to get back to where I want to go. Yeah, yeah. You know well, I mean? it, it, it's, it was like the most challenging physical thing I've ever done. I mean, it, I had, very early on, I knew this was going to be bad. I mean, very early on, I got altitude sickness on the second day. Um, I had steroid injections and I was on oxygen on day two. Like, I, I could, I don't know, I can bench press 90, 100 kilos for lots and lots and lots of reps. I'm a baby gorilla at the end of the training. I was really strong. Um, I was in day two in Kilimanjaro and it took me an hour to eat a slice of toast because I couldn't lift it off the plate. That's oh what altitude sickness was like. Um, and how are your lungs, by the way? Are you, were you ever a smoker? I was never a smoker. And, uh, you know, I smokers generally, but not always, but a lot of smokers will do well at altitude because they're already functioning on bad lung capacity. Right, so they're used so, to it. Okay, yeah, okay. Yeah, I needed buckets of oxygen and about 900 calories a day, and I couldn't do either. So I got really, really ill. I mean, on, on day two, I passed out, and I managed to stand upright on the hiking poles so that the doctor didn't see me and, and pull the plug. And um, I managed to puke all over my feet, and my wife's feet, she was standing beside me. But I remember I came around Nile, and there was like, it was like a bad scene from a cartoon. There was, there was a raven and a vulture sitting in a rock looking at me, and they were like, I could see the two of them going. He's not going like to make Irish, it. He's not going to make yeah, it. We, we've got an Irish snack here, you know. And <laughs> yeah. I, one, one of the, uh, one of the Africans who were amazing, the Tanzanians walked past me and he said, uh, Akuna Matata. And I've heard that line I, before, yeah. Yeah, I was about to stand up and tell him where he could stick his Lion King. Um, but thankfully, I didn't because I didn't realize that the Lion King, all the characters in it and all the language used in it is actual Swahili. It's African language. Okay. And when, when the guy said Akuna Matata, what he was, was he, what he was saying was, everything's going to be okay. You'll be okay. Right. You know, and the Africans were amazing. I mean, they'd heard about Ireland and they heard about the Irish, but like when they saw this Irish guy getting off a bus with a washing machine on his back, I, I'll never forget their face. They like they were typical yeah. Irish cop size. <laughs> no, they were just stunned, stunned. But I mean, how are but, the Africans going up? These guys is like a walk in the park, probably. They're doing it on a regular basis for tourists. And yeah. Else. So, yeah. You know, I but mean, they, had, they, were, they, they were amazing people getting paid very, very little money to do a hard job. One of the guides told me he had climbed Kilimanjaro 13, 14 times that year. And I said to him, why, why do you climb uh, so often? And he said, because I love my family. It yeah. feeds my family. And they had a gentleness and a wisdom about them. I mean, I, I was walking along at one stage and I looked at my nails and they were like greeny, fungusy, horrible, black, you know, like really yeah. manky. And I looked at my nails and I said to one of the guides, Emmanuel, I said, God, look at my nails. I said, what the hell is that under my fingernails? And he took my hand and he had a look at the nails and he said, that's adventure. <laughs> <laughs> that's adventure. Yeah. So that's, that's that- what they were like. I mean, we, we wanted to... I wanted to, to post stuff on Facebook, but of course the, the phone signal was so bad. But on the day we left for base camp in Kilimanjaro, I went into the Vodafone shop in, um, in Tanzania where we were. And um, I'll never forget it. I walked in and the, the Tanzanian uh, Vodafone shop was staffed by Maasai warriors 
who were wearing the full Maasai skirt, faint, paste, painted faces, and had spears in the shop. Oh, right. <laughs> and did you, like, did, did, you, you, get, did your, you get a SIM card? I did, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and did you not? Did you not have to use a satellite phone in, in a place like that? No, we we listened. So I hadn't a clue. It was pure innocence. I mean, we, if, I, no one. I, I imagine now. you don't get a phone signal. I mean, if you're getting as high as helicopters, you're probably not going to get a phone. I mean, the vultures would have been flying below you yeah. instead of above no, you. There, you was, know? there was there was flo- for, flo- uh, a phone signal in places. I I got so ill. Um, like finally like on summit night we left and I was so ill at that stage that you know our message was share the load and ask for help and it was the Irish people and the Tanzanians that got the washing machine the last hour and a half to the summit and I had an oximeter on me which is you know the little red light you put on your finger to see your oxygen level of course yeah yeah the, the doctor's like my oxygen level was reading 72 or 74, which in Ireland, I think if you're under 90, you're in an ambulance on the way to hospital. And I, I, I was a little bit away from losing consciousness. Um, I didn't know, like... The was it not said, part of you saying at that stage, you know, I, I need to stop. I mean, I need to yeah. go back. Yeah, there was because... The logical see, part of you, I mean. Yeah, well, I, I had, you see, the... the I, the doctor was running mental tests on me to see, you know, how brain tests. So he, he said to me at one stage, he gave me an address. He said, like, 17 Brentwood Crescent, Earl's Court. And he said, I'm going to ask you that in five minutes' time. You know, he was trying to test my brain function. But what he didn't know was for the next five minutes or ten minutes, I just repeat the address constantly. Mm. So when he asked me, I just repeated what I had just heard. Right. And he thought he thought I was okay. Now, I got steroids, I got oxygen. I knew the worrying thing for me now was at one stage he gestured to my wife and he said, you know who that is? And I had never seen her before. I had no clue who she was. And I knew at that point things, things were weren't bad. going well. Yeah. Um, Mind I you, there's a lot of men listening at the moment We think of themselves. <laughs> I'd, like to, be to, I'd <laughs> like to be able to forget that. Or who've done that on Friday night. <laughs> okay, so, so from that point, and I, and I don't mean to rush you because you've had yeah, such an sure. interesting life already, you obviously decided you wanted to help other people. You became a motivational speaker as well. Yeah. Um, and I suppose that's the part I want to get to about motivation because yeah. uh, the reason I want to talk to you tonight is because at the moment we're all finding it very difficult to motivate ourselves, particularly yeah. when we don't know when we can get back to some level of normality again. Although they keep talking about the new normal, I'm not happy to accept that. If you let me give you my personal circumstances, I'm very frustrated by this whole thing. Mm. Um, I'm very frustrated by the fact I'd like to be able to go on holidays. Um, I want my life back. I want my, the, you know, the 2020 life that I had before. I want it back again. I want to get back to yeah. the normal. I want to be stuck in a car, you know, in, in traffic. I want yeah. all those things back again. And we're all so frustrated, you know, when we see Leo on the telly saying, oh, it's another two weeks, a bit more. And everything is like doom and gloom. And, and I understand people are dying I'm not taking away from that but it's all very grim so how do we get through that yeah well look the the first thing is you know think about what actions you're taking you know because like if you like if if you sat down with your partner and you watch let's let's say a a very romantic movie we won't say steamy but let's say you watch a very romantic movie right okay it's no surprise that after that movie either one of you or both of you are having certain thoughts about doing certain actions, right? Okay. And you, what you was the name of the movie, just so I can remember, write it down? Any, <laughs> any of them, multiple. multiple. Yeah, right. But in the, same, in the same way, you know, if you watch, if I, I don't generally watch horror films because if I watch a horror film and the bin, you know, the cat lands on the bin outside, I have a double heart attack because I start reliving the whole thing, right? Right, okay. And what I'm seeing now is a lot of people are, are, are watching constant death, destruction, fear, you know, like science reports, you're watching, feeding your brain all this, and then 
we're surprised that it elicits emotions in us, that like terror and fear and despair and all of those things. So first thing I, I've really done is when I get up in the morning, I watch the news. I need to know if there's any major improvements or something changing or something I need to do. But I don't, I don't feed that frenzy in my head all day. The other thing I would say to you is... Well, see, I, you know, unfortunately, I'm in a position where I can't help but feel You the have frenzy. no choice. Yeah, yeah, yeah sure. Okay. You have, you're, and, and it's surrounding you. But a lot of people do have the choice of reducing the amount of exposure they have to, to that. I think the other really important thing that I've learned is, you know actions get you out of or get you into trouble. You need to do something, right? So I, I'll give you a practical example. So a negative thought, match it with a positive action. I was, I was mentoring this lady and I work with, with individual people from businesses and sporting people. But I was working with this lady. She's a very, very prominent business lady and she was struggling with some weight loss. And she rang me one evening. She said, and I'm stopping this crack. I just, I'm making no progress. I said, why? She said, it's just not working. She said, I'm going to the gym four or five nights a week and I'm getting over. I said, where do you park your car? She said, what? I said, where do you park the car? And of course, she parked the car. She would have driven in the front door of the gym and gone up to the machine and parked beside it if she could. So I simply said to her, right, that's a negative thought. Let's take a positive action. The positive action was she parked her car about a mile and a half from the gym and walked there. Right, okay. over, six, over six or seven weeks, she had done two marathons. Okay, so, right? it, so and, in other words, you need to make it difficult for yourself as well in that particular situation, take, yeah. Negative thought, take a positive action. So the first day I came home and with COVID broke out, I went to my laptop, I found a free course and I did, I, I did seven week course in digital media marketing because I thought TikTok was a sound that came out of the clock in the kitchen. And now <laughs> so now I, I know otherwise, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay, I knew, okay, and most people can see it coming, but most people don't take the action. I knew I was going to go to that fridge every five minutes and graze like it was Christmas Day. Right. So what I, I promised myself that I was going to eat three large meals, eat healthy, but not snack in between. Yeah, see, I get, I, you know, if I, if I eat another bag of popcorn, you know, I mean, I swear to God, I mean, yeah. I, I, and that's all I'm doing. I'm eating cream crackers and popcorn. Yeah. And, you know what I mean? I'm just because yeah. I'm bo- bored. I'm bored. Yeah. I, I think yeah. a lot of us are bored. So I, it's trying to. And then you say, well, I should be doing stuff to get rid of the boredom here. But you just can't motivate yourself to be bothered to get up off your arse and actually do it. Yeah, but if you say to yourself, if you're, I'm bored, that's a negative thought, then you need to follow that with a positive action. Let's go and do something, you know? Mm. Like, if you if you think, God, I'm running out of money, you need to try and figure out a way to make more money. Like, I, I continually am aware of what's coming, and I know my triggers for boredom. I know my triggers for depression and anxiety. So I, I will really, really work hard on them. So, like, I'm, I'm still, a lot of my friends have got are staying up later and later, Netflix and binging oh, I know, and yeah. drink. So All I'm our body still, clocks are, are doomed, yeah. yeah. We are about 20 minutes away from my bedtime. I will be asleep before quarter past 10. I had my Good breakfast at 6 a.m. Now, it's not that I'm Mr. Motivator, but I know for a fact if I, if I keep my sleep... By the way, can I, sorry, just can I mention for sure. our regular listeners, Mr. Motivator will be ominous during the week at night. Just, <laughs> <laughs> just that was not rehearsed. That was not rehearsed. <laughs> no, it wasn't rehearsed. Okay. Yeah, but if I keep my sleep pattern regular, my exercise regular, if I keep my food you know, in good shape, lots of good things then start to happen. You know, it's 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 our, it's looking at your life as a whole web and realizing I've got to do lots of positive things that are going to help me. So, like I, my plan at the start of this, there's, there's a great friend of mine. He's probably listening this evening, and he works in the in the emergency response unit. And most of his weeks are filled with stress and pressure, and you know, firearms and crime, and you know, it's it's a tough tough job he's in. But he says to me that when they finish after you know a significant event, something really difficult or scary happens, they sit down as a team and what they look. Back and they say they ask themselves one question did I survive or did I thrive 
Like, what actions did I take that made my life better when this is over, right? And for everybody listening to this, like, it's a different story for everyone. We all have different partners, different jobs, different areas, different locations, different dreams, different goals. But the one thing we do have in common is that we need to make a huge effort to take actions to do something so we come out of this in, in better shape than we went into it. And I agree with you. I don't want this new normality. I want to sit in a coffee shop and if I want four coffees and read the paper for two hours, I want it. I'm so missing the bookies. I'm missing rugby. I'm, I'm missing just people <laughs> shaking me hands. You know, okay, I, mean, I, yeah. Yeah, I, I want to go back to people saying hi and shaking your hand. You know, and, yeah. and, not, and we, we, we started off with people touching elbows. We're not even allowed to do that anymore. So, yeah. but I, and, I, yeah. and I keep hearing stories then from Tony Houlihan and everybody else that, oh, next year when this is all over, there'll be no, no normal this will be the way it'll be the new normal will be social dis- hang on that's not my new normal so but yeah. what I'm saying is at the moment we're on a situation where we don't have a date we don't have a target we don't have a light at the end of the tunnel as such we have kind of mishmash of, of a fa- few phases from the the, the yeah. Yeah. but we don't yeah. really know and, and there's this the, it's the unknown I mean normally in my life right all the way through I only explained this to me the other day all the way through my life I had targets I said right I want to be a DJ I want to work in nightclubs I want to do 21st or I mm. want to get my own business and I've always thankfully achieved those things and I've always yeah. been in that position but I find myself at the moment in a position where I can't set targets where I can't set a goal because I don't see the future the way I used to be able to see it mm. well I, I think I think you can set targets and I will tell you I think you know I often say to people, life is full of crap. Like, people will lie to you, people will steal from you, people will let you down, people will disappoint you, you know, illnesses will happen, people you love will leave, will die. Life is tough, but what, and that's, we can't control all of that, but what we can control is our reaction to it. Have, have you ever heard, Niall, of, of, of Violet Jessup? No, I can't say I have. Ah, uh, you love Violet Jessup. She was an Irish, uh, well, she was, her parents were Irish. She was born in Argentina back in 1887. And there was about nine kids in her family. So as far as I can remember, the first five or six all died from different illnesses. But she survived. She got through, right? Yeah. Um, she got tuberculosis and the doctors told her mother that Violet was going to die 100% say goodbye to your child. But Violet decided otherwise. She survived. She got through, right? She moved back to the UK after her dad died and difficult time for her but eventually she qualified as a nurse and she got a job uh, on a ship called the Olympic right so if you can imagine this she's got through all these hardships she's sailing out of the harbour in Southampton and the Olympic gets hit by an English battleship called the Hawk and it sinks the ship on her first day right right Okay. She survived. She got through it. She got a job on a, on a ship called the Britannic, right? And you're going to say, I'm back on the sauce. I'm making this up. You can Google it. You can Google it when I'm finished. Exactly. But she's, well, no, Helena, my producer, no. just said in my ear, she's Googling it as we speak, but go on. No, she got, tell Helena, she's wrong. She, it got hit by a torpedo, <laughs> and right? And as she's getting off the boat, she's in the lifeboat, she got hit by the propeller in the head. Oh, stop. Guess what, Niall? She got through, Right. And so she had worked for this company loyally and got through all these tragedies. So they decided that, you know, she deserved a promotion. She got a nice job. She got a job as a nurse on a very famous ship called? The Titanic. There you go. And she survived. Right? (laughs) She survived. And I read a story recently that she saved a child on the Titanic. She died in the UK in the 1970s, 1977 or 1978. And she got a phone call, I think, allegedly from the child who she saved on the Titanic years later to say, I'm the child that you saved. So I could tell you 20 people like that. And you, you said to me, you're finding it hard to be motivated. Like, the, it's, our, it's our lot as humans to have difficulty. 
you know, but how we deal with the difficulty and the difficult times, it's up to us to make a positive decision. It's up to us to say, right, I'm going to do something. I'm going to get through this, you know. And, like what, I, and what I, about I, the idea? You you talked about helping people, right? Yeah. And of course, it's hard to help somebody when you need help yourself sometimes. Yeah. But I've always had this thing, and maybe I'm wrong in saying it, that although there are other people out there who are miserable or depressed, right? Yeah. And it's my job to obviously look after me. And yeah. I, people often said, when you're miserable and depressed, you shouldn't surround yourself by negative people. You should distance yourself from negative people. Yeah. Is, is that the right yeah. thing to do? Well, it's what works What works for you, and it obviously works for me too. Did you, this, this is an awful question. Um, did you ever buy a pair of knickers that were a mistake? Did you ever buy a pair of boxers or underwear that they just didn't sit right? Yeah, or yeah, yeah. The, the luggage wasn't appropriately tucked <laughs> on into the, you, <laughs> And you, yeah, spend, so you spend the day either pulling them out or pulling them up or adjusting them, right? And I, and I, and I know, ask my lady friends this, and they all tell me the same that they often, right? If you bought a pair of underwear and you put them on and they were cutting you to pieces, you would not tomorrow put them on and say, I'll give them another chance, another chance. The first night you got home, straight in the bin, you'd say, they were a disaster. I'll never buy that brand again, right? And I'm the same with negative people. Like something that's toxic or negative to my happiness or my life, it's gone. I can walk away from someone mid-sentence if I think that they're a nutter or someone that's going to bring me down. You said I was a nutter at the start of the show. (laughs) (laughs) But it's true. Like we need to make decisions. Like there was was a journalist interviewed me a couple of years ago and uh, he wasn't really nice. I knew he was just, he didn't really care about mental health and he wasn't really interested in my story and I knew he just wanted dirt, you know. But he said said to me, oh, what's your great? achievement and it was one of those rare occasions in life that do you know when you did you ever have a row with someone and two hours later you think of the thing you should have said do you know when you're at home and you say yeah, well I yeah, should have told, told him that I yeah. should have told her where to stick her microphone or I should have told that bloody big person this but sometimes in life the right thing just comes out and your man said to me he said what's your greatest achievement in life and and I said surrounding myself with brilliant people because the people I only have people in my life that are funny, that are caring, that are helpful, that support me, that encourage me. And it took me years to realise that, you know, you get a short run at this. Like I don't want I don't want to I know we're probably coming to the end now, but I don't I don't want to depress your neighbours, anyone listening, right? You're, but the average Irish person gets twenty seven thousand days of life. Right? Yeah. So you got to be really careful. It doesn't sound like them. a lot of days when you say it it's like that, does it? It's very few. It's very few. Like, you and I are very lucky. You clear, Like, I listen to the show and you clearly love what you do. You can hear the passion in your voice. Sometimes it comes out as anger. Sometimes it comes out as comedy. Sometimes it comes out as... And sometimes you know, they come out as a nutter. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, but you're, you, you can clear the passion. But you see, the thing is, you need passion for what you do. Like, I love speaking. It's funny. Everyone assumes as a speaker that I'm really, like, super confident. I'll tell you... About two minutes before I go on stage, if someone came up to me and said, Andy, you can go home, I would run. I have double diarrhea, the shakes and the sweats. If you look at any publicity photographs, I'm always wearing a black or a navy suit. And that's because it's usually welded to me with sweat, with nervous perspiration. Yeah, but see, I'm, I'm the same. I mean, I'll chat away on radio to my heart's consent. There's nobody else in here yeah. can see me anyway, apart from the producer. But, you know, yeah. we have listener parties and stuff, and I'm so uncomfortable with the whole idea of people coming over for selfies and all that kind of thing. I'm very yeah. uncomfortable in social gatherings. I don't like, I don't go into pubs because I don't drink. Um, and I yeah. don't like going to places where there's lots of people. You know, so I'm not very confident in those situations, but I am confident behind a microphone or even on television or whatever it happens to be. And I've done a bit of television as well, but I don't mind doing that. I just I just forget that people are listening. Yeah, I I, I know 30 seconds into what I'm doing, I I could not be any happier than when I'm performing or speaking in front of people. I really love it. Um, It's just it's just pure heaven to me. But, you know, my point about, you know, 
can you get through adversity? Can you keep going? And my other thing to you was, you know, like realizing that you've got to fill your life with good people, good experiences, you know, to do as much as you can. Because, like, you, you just, you don't know. I mean, like, I, I love reading about all these people who, like, a lot of people say to me, Enda, you, you've gone through a lot of difficult times. You're an inspiration. But I take inspiration from other people. You know, I love to read these stories and find out about what other people have got through. Um, I came across, have you heard of this guy, Nigel Ogden? Have you heard of him? No, no, no I haven't. But you're going to tell me. I, well, I can tell you now because uh, nobody's going to be flying for a few months and you'll have forgotten before you get on a plane again. But um, there was a flight 5390, was a BA flight. I think it's about 16, 17 years ago, flying out of London. And uh, they were just, they were half an hour outside London on the way to Malaga in Spain. And the windshield on the cockpit blew out completely. Okay. And if you can imagine this, the pilot was sucked straight out the window. And the, this guy, Nigel Ogden, managed to grab his pilot by his two feet and hold on to him. Oh, my. Now, at 17,000 feet, right, at 17,000 feet, right, they're doing about 340 miles an hour. And it's about minus 20 degrees. And he's hanging out okay? the window. Yeah. He is plastered, you know, like a shirt across the top of the plane. Okay. And Nigel held him in place for 22 minutes till they got back to Southampton, landed. They both had frostbite and they both survived. Now, I know it's an extreme case, but I always go back to what I say to people is like when you're going through hell, if your life is muck and you're just suffering like and you think like you just said, when will this end? And I want my old life back. All you have to do is just keep going, keep moving forward. It pa- it will pass. Like I, people said to me sometimes, you know, Enda, when you're walking from Belfast to Waterford, I, I hope people aren't eating any snacks listening to this, but I lost all of my toenails. They all I know, people, I, I, I've never done that kind of stuff, by the way, but I've talked right. to people, and when I was younger, actually, I did run a marathon, but what I know, right. I, but people do, but they lose nipples and all sorts of things. And Yeah, well, I yeah. lost all of my toenails, I lost the fat pads from the front of my feet, um, I had hallucinations, the main road turned into a, snoke, uh, into a snake, I, can ha- I had what can only be described as Chernobyl diarrhea, it was radioactive and glowed in the dark. I was as sick as hell, and then it got really hard because I broke my two feet because I was carrying this washing machine. Because I weigh 100 kilos. So what kept you going? The adrenaline kept you going. Well, here's the thing is... And the motivation, I suppose. Yeah, you wanted to finish, you had to complete it. All all they did was take one step at a time. Mm -hmm. That's all I did. I did not walk from Belfast to Waterford. I literally walked from one foot to the next foot. Like, I I remember each night in the hotel, we'd get back to different hotels, and the crew were with me, but the gang was great, and the crack was mighty. They were slugging the pints and drinking the chips, and they were saying, did you remember this house, and do you remember that lovely girl we met, or what did you think of that politician? And I had no memory of any of it, because I picked a spot on the road, I put my head down, and I just focused on front of me, and just kept moving forward. You know, it's it's, it's and, and um, that's what I and sorry to come back to what I said what, to you a few minutes ago. This is what I've done with my life. I've picked a spot every single time. I've picked a spot and said I will be doing this by this time. I will have this yeah. by this time, or you know, this job by this time. But that's what I think a lot of people like me at the moment are finding themselves in a situation where your timeline has completely been disrupted uh, by yeah. the fact that, you know, there's nothing happening, no planes flying, uh, no cars on the road, you know, there's no targets. You have, Everybody's yeah. job is in jeopardy, including radio, by the way. Everything is in jeopardy at the moment. We don't know where we all stand. So th- all that has been just turned completely upside down for people. Yeah, and it's a time, maybe it's a time to slow down a little bit. Um, about, about two years ago, I saw this guy on Facebook. Eamon Keevney is his name. He got into the Guinness Book of Records. He walked the entire um, circumference of Ireland barefoot. 
And when I saw when I saw this guy, and he was doing it for Pieta House, and um, when I saw this guy on on Facebook, I said I'm going to reach out, and, and I messaged him, and I said, look, I told him about my washing machine. I said I'd love to come and help you, and just spend a day walking with you. And we walked together, but I, of the whole day, I remember one conversation. His feet were immaculate. He had no cuts, no scrapes, nothing. And as we walked along, we came to a really, really dangerous, rough piece of tarmac with rocks sticking up. And I said to him, God, Eamon, this must really hurt you. And he said, no. He said, what you do, he said, is when you come to a really bad patch, you just slow down, you take your time, you navigate through it. And when I get to the smooth tarmac or I get to the grass, then I walk on again. And it was, it stuck with me. And I was so powerful. Like right now, we're on the rough tarmac. Right now, we're walking along and we're going, oh, my God, will this ever end? But, you know, we just have to persevere and the smooth the smooth stuff is on the other side. We will well, see it and we will get through. It's been wonderful talking to you, Enda. Absolutely wonderful talking uh, to you. My, my, thank you so much. My wish for you is when you're sitting down with a glass of a nice cup of coffee or Red a nice Bull, tea Red and Bull. a bicky, Red Bull, and you have <laughs> your feet up on the couch and, you're wa- and reeling, reeling in the years comes on and they talk about 2020 and you look back and go, Jesus, that was mad, wasn't it? I wonder whatever happened to that nutter with the washing machine. (laughs) (laughs) And you would ever say, I wonder whatever happened to that nutter on the radio station. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, Endo Doherty, it's been wonderful. If you want more information on Endo, you can go to his website, endoodoherty.ie. He does all this kind of motivational speaking and also helps with mental health. He's an activist as well. Endo, it's been wonderful talking to you. It's actually inspiring talking to you. Thanks very much indeed and I appreciate you coming. God bless. Real people, real opinions, real talk radio. The multi award winning Niall Boylan Show. Classic hits.